first did the black hole in 1999 with my friends Pat and Jim. The black hole is a deep, tight slot in White Canyon. It's a dark, narrow hole filled with cold, dark water. It requires swimming or wading a mile or more of its five-mile length and for years had the reputation of being a deadly, creepy place. It had killed at least one hiker by flash flood and stranded many. But on the contrary, I found the black hole to be one of the most beautiful canyons I've descended, and beware because once you've done it, you'll want to do it again and again, which I did several dozen times. After 9-11, I became the area's health department emergency planner. Over the years working there, I kept repeating the black hole on my days off. I was vaguely aware of the uranium mining and milling history of the area and was a close friend of the current owner of one of the biggest uranium mines in Utah, the Happy Jack, located one mile upstream from the black hole entrance. At some point, I can't pinpoint when, I began wondering about the intelligence of spending so much time in the canyons and tributaries of White Canyon. After all, it's estimated that the north end of Lake Powell was the recipient of 26,000 tons of unremediated uranium tailings and the drainages that carried most of it were White Canyon, the San Juan River, and the Colorado. At one of a dozen mills dumping into the Glen Canyon, the Happy Jack alone went through 20 tons of ore per day, crushing it, grinding it up, then treating it with sulfuric acid, tributyl phosphate, and other caca. 40,000 pounds of tailings piled up daily outside the mill and on the banks of the river. The tailings were left where they sat when the lake filled. Yes, these tailings are downstream of the black hole, but not the mines, or Fry Canyon Uranium Ore Upgrader Mill, or the Copper Heap Leach operation there. These all were shut down by 1968, but were responsible for uranium, radium, and copper contamination of groundwater at Fry Canyon, which empties directly into White Canyon. Once contamination occurs, it's essentially permanent. This is about 15 miles upstream from the black hole entrance. I started to wonder, am I putting myself at risk for accumulation of radiation exposure each time I go into the hole or into Fry Canyon itself. I mean, I've done Fry Canyon probably 50 times. In 1998, it was discovered that carnotite, an ore used to color body paint by early Navajos and Utes, contained uranium. This triggered a small uranium boom and some mines in San Juan County were worked. Almost 50 years later, as a result of the arms race of the Cold War, uranium came into demand as a key element in nuclear weapons. After the end of World War II, the Manhattan Project which then became the Atomic Energy Commission, sent geologists to prospect the region and launched the first federally funded mineral rush in history. 
the Atomic Energy Commission upgraded or constructed roads into the backcountry like the old Highway 95. They promised $10,000 bonus for new loads of high-grade ore. Get the guaranteed prices per ton. They built mills and subsidized hauling. In 1952, Charles Steen located the Mivita mine in Lisbon Valley, southeast of Moab. Steen's Folly, as it was called, was the nation's first big uranium strike, and more mines followed, including the Happy Jack, which netted its owners over 25 million. By 1955, over 800 mines were operating on the Colorado Plateau. From the Manhattan Project days, health scientists warned that radiation in the mines was a danger to miners, but the Atomic Energy Commission, the state governments, and the mining companies refused to regulate ventilation and safety practices. After hundreds of miners in the Four Corners area died of lung cancer from inhaling mine dust and radon gas, safe exposure levels were imposed. Although uranium mining has ceased in Utah, if there's a demand, it could become active in the future. For the rest of this podcast, it will help if you have a basic idea of what radiation is. So here goes my 90-second physics class. Radiation is energy from unstable atoms called radionuclides that undergo radioactive decay. Radiation travels from the source in the form of energized particles or waves. There are two kinds of radiation, ionizing and non-ionizing, and they have different effects. But we're just talking about ionizing radiation here. It has enough energy to knock electrons out of atoms, a process known as ionization that can affect living cells and poses a risk by damaging tissue and DNA and genes. This is the type of radiation you'd you'd get from radioactive elements like uranium as it undergoes radioactive decay. Radioactive decay is the emission of energy in the form of ionic radiation and includes alpha particles, beta particles, and gamma rays. Alpha particles are big and heavy, so they use up their energy in short distance. They cannot penetrate the outer layers of the skin, but can be very harmful inside the body. In other words, if they're ingested, inhaled, or absorbed through a cut. Beta particles are small, fast-moving particles that travel farther and are more penetrating than alpha, but less damaging to tissue and DNA, and can be stopped by a layer of clothing or a sheet of aluminum. Gamma rays are weightless packets of energy called photons. Unlike alpha and beta particles, that have weight and mass, gamma rays are pure energy, similar to visible light, but much higher energy that causes damage to tissue and DNA. So back to the story. Could repeated exposure to white canyon sediments and water expose me to health risks? Well, exposure to low-level radiation does not cause immediate health effects, but can cause a small increase in the risk of cancer. The higher the dose, the higher the risk. The risk increases as the dose increases. Studies have also 
linked exposure to low-level radiation to cardiovascular disease, in particular hypertension. But remember, radiation is cumulative, and scientists agree there's no such thing as a harmless dose. But there's no practical way to measure your cumulative dose. As for levels in the canyon, in the 50s, the Public Health Service found radiation content of river muds below the the, uh, mills was 1,000 to 2,000 times the natural background concentration. But later tests showed only a slightly elevated level in the lake itself once it filled up. What would happen to radioactive particles that might be inhaled from dry sediment or ingested in the water? Most do get cleared from the body eventually, but in the meantime, they contribute to the occurrence of various cancers, including bone and lung cancer, and interestingly, to the occurrence of degenerative neurologic disorders like Parkinson's. Back in 2003, I wanted to know what the levels were in the black hole in Fry Canyon. When I asked my superiors about getting some testing done or doing some testing myself, I was told no. I can't remember what their reasoning was, just the awkward feeling their response left me with. I did on my own gather some sediment and water samples from the black hole in Fry, and I ran them by my old civil defense Geiger counter in the office. But a proper reading can be obscured by water, dust, or containers, and without calibrating that 50-year-old relic and doing some additional testing, I really couldn't make any conclusions. So the question remains, how much, if any, radiation above normal background radiation are we exposed to hiking and swimming through the black hole in Fry Canyon? We are all exposed to radiation in our everyday lives, but repeated lengthy exposures to low-level radiation above normal background levels, like inhaling radon, is harmful. Ingesting or inhaling alpha-emitting compounds like radium-226, which can bind to sediment or dissolve in water, can be harmful. It could very well be that the levels are small and insignificant there in the black hole in Fry Canyon, but I still want to know. I'm 70 years old and have Parkinson's. I won't be going through the hole again, but several hundred people, maybe a thousand this year, will, and maybe they should know. When I described Combe Ridge to you, I mentioned we'd be back to explain what a monocline is. Combe is a north-south trending monocline. A monocline is a fold, a simple bend in the rock layers so that it's no longer horizontal. It's like a step or a curve. Or you can describe it as a huge ramp with steeply tilted strata separating uplifted regions from dropped regions. At Combe, the uplifted region lies to the west in the form of the monument upwarp. Older rocks to the west are separated from younger rocks immediately east by the gigantic ramp of Combe Ridge. When it occurred, there was subsequent deep incising into the uplift 
by powerful rivers, and they, they formed the exposed face. Folds like Comb Ridge are the result of colliding crustal plates. Rocks deform by compressive stress into folds. If you're having a hard time visualizing this, uh, as soon as I explain this little experiment to you, go do the experiment and come back and finish. It's pretty simple, basically three steps. Go grab some towels out of the dryer and build a stack of towels. Just fold them over once, build a stack of towels. It helps if you alternate colors to represent different rock strata. And then what I want you to do is put your hands on either side of the stack and push the stack together. And you'll watch the towels become folded. They'll, they'll start folding like a geologic fold does. So once again, just build a stack of towels, alternate the colors to repeat, I mean, to, to represent different rock strata. Put your hands on the sides, push it together, and look at the folds. A monocline is a simple one-step fold. It doesn't arch. It does not have an arch. A syncline is a fold that arches down, so it has a down leg and an up leg. And nanticline is a fold that arches up. It has an up leg and a down leg. Most monoclines are the surface expression of a reverse fault in older rocks beneath the surface. In a reverse fault, the upper block above the fault moves up relative to the lower block below the fault. Comb Ridge formed at the same time as the Rocky Mountains, 50 to 65 million years ago during the Monument Upwarp, which included Cedar Mesa and Monument Valley. That upwarp was part of the Laramide Orogeny, a period of mountain building in Western North America that happened 35 to 80 million years ago. As you look east at the face of Comb Ridge, you're looking at the steeply eroded face of the lower block. The sharp tooth-like ridges formed by differential erosion are called hogbacks. And looking at that face, the layers that you're looking at on Comb Ridge's face are, from top to bottom, Navajo sandstone, Cayenta formation, Wingate sandstone, which forms the big faces, the Chinle formation, the Monkopi formation, and the Oregon rock formation. Other monoclines in the region are Water Pocket Fold and Capitol Reef, Grand View Phantom Monocline in Grand Canyon, and the monoclines in Colorado National Monument. That should do it. Thank you.